Somebody sent this to me just three days ago. The headline reads, South Korea shows reunited mother with deceased daughter in virtual reality. What does that mean, in virtual reality? Well, it means the mother was wearing a headset, and so they created her daughter, who passed away, I believe, at seven years old, from an unknown illness. And so they decided to create this girl from nothing. She passed away in 2016, I believe, and they brought her back. And so the mother was able to put this headset on. And you could watch on this documentary, which I did not, of how this mother becomes emotional, how she's appearing to hold the face of her child. And she's all excited about this interaction that she has with this virtual individual who she believes to be as is her child, or at least has that appearance. And I look at that article and I wonder, what is this all about? I mean, we know as Seventh-day Adventists about what happens to you when you die and so on and so forth. And I suppose you could reason, well, this isn't that, but it sure seems awfully similar to that, doesn't it? It seems like it's kind of preparing us to entertain the ideas of being able to interact with deceased loved ones. In fact, Over in South Korea, where this was done, there's this show that wants to do this over and over and over in reconnecting individuals with their lost family members. I seem to have a problem with that. I don't know about you. I think of this verse in Psalms 101, verse 3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Is that a good verse to, to live by? Yet how often... Do we live by that verse? We're going through this series on Paul, a man of grace and grit. And today's piece is number 17 here. It says, I know Jesus and Paul, but who are you? And in this piece today, we're going to see two groups. Those who are completely sold out for God, sold out for the gospel, and are endowed with the gift of the Holy Spirit... Yet we're also going to see a group of individuals who carry the name, but don't know God. And we'll see what happens for them. And so to begin, I I hope you brought your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Acts chapter 19, continuing this series, and we're beginning in verse 1. And so we begin reading there. And it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now let's stop right there. We've been working off of this map. I know it's kind of a, a small map. Oh, we went two here. But this is Paul's second missionary journey. We've been following Paul kind of counterclockwise here, starting in Antioch, all the way up and around the map. Last time we were with Paul, we were in Corinth. And you notice he went to Ephesus, but this is not the time we're talking about. He spent a brief amount of time there, traveled back to Jerusalem, back up to Antioch. That's considered the home base, if you will, for Paul. And so when he sets out from there, he's on his third missionary journey. And so the map looks, well, it doesn't want to stay there. It looks a little bit like this. And so now in our story, as we go through the book of Acts, we find ourselves again in Ephesus. And this is the first time that really we have a a substantial story that is told in regards to Paul. And so we're not in the second missionary journey anymore, but we're in the third and we find ourselves in Ephesus. I had some neat notes about Ephesus. I'll have to see if I can remember what they were. Ephesus was a port city. It was on one of the main thoroughfares going east and west. 
In fact, the, the name means something special, something to, to be delighted in. And so Ephesus, they thought, was about 250,000 people or something of that nature. In fact, this is the theater, as they call it, that they think seats anywhere from 15 to 25,000 people. Archaeologists and various individuals will tell you, you just multiply that by 10, and that will tell you approximately the, the size of the city. And so that's where we get that number. And then up in the foothills of Ephesus, there were some beautiful mansions. Some 20,000 square feet mansions, 10,000 square feet mansions with heated floors and all kinds of luxuries in them there in Ephesus. And when Paul was there, this was before the the big library that Ephesus was known for was was fully there, uh, but it was still uh, one of the, the highlights of that entire region. And not only with that, but there was this temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, which is one and the same. And so along with that, there were all kinds of inscriptions. In fact, I believe there was something like 167 or something like that, pillars in here, and all kinds of inscriptions throughout this temple to Diana. And then there were all kinds of books that would tell and explain to you what each of these cultic symbols meant. And so you could interpret this symbol and that symbol and all kinds of things. And so Ephesus was largely built on superstitions, largely built on these cultic practices, and everybody wanted to do and to try and appease certain gods and so on. And so that again was part of the culture in which Paul finds himself. And so that's Ephesus. And so we continue on in our verse, and finding some disciples... He said to them, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This was a common greeting, like, are you a Christian? And so Paul is greeting these disciples. We find out later, a few verses down, there's about 12 of them. And it's a simple question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, Paul, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, And what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Now stop right there. Did John speak of the Holy Spirit? Well, I believe he did. Luke chapter 3 verse 16 says, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now stop and think about this. Jesus is going to come. He will give you the Holy Spirit. And when does he fully give the Holy Spirit? After he, right before he ascends, right? He says, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And so on and so forth. So this is at Pentecost that they receive the Holy Spirit and fire. And so somehow, some way, they came into the teaching through the teaching of repentance of John, but that's as far as they've gotten. Perhaps being thus far removed from Jerusalem, maybe they've heard rumors of a Jesus, rumors of some things happening, but it hasn't been verified to them, it hasn't been proven to them through the scriptures. And so when they say, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? I don't imagine now, maybe John said it and they just didn't hear it. I'm guilty of that many times. But maybe they're simply saying, The Holy Spirit, we heard something about it, but we don't know really what you're talking about. We haven't received anything. What is this that you're saying? And so we continue on. Verse 4, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him 
who would come after him, that is, on Christ. And when they heard, notice that this in my Bible is in italics, so we could leave that word out. It's a supplied word. It's really when they heard, and I imagine when they heard the full teachings about how Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, how he was the fulfillment ultimately of the gospel. When they heard all these things, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. They come to find new information, and they say, we want to be baptized. We want the Holy Spirit. So verse 6, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And now the men were about 12 in all. So you hear the Holy Spirit. This is really a Pentecostal experience, isn't it? That we find in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit is descending down upon them. And that same group does something very similar to what we see here. In fact, let's go back. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. What were they doing? They were praying. They were united. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so it may have looked something like this. We don't know, but this is one artist's depiction of the Holy Spirit falling upon them. This is supernatural. This is not normal, if you will. But this is what the Holy Spirit chose to do to show that he was being poured out upon his church. And what was the purpose of the Holy Spirit being poured out, you might ask? Well, the verse tells us later on, or the chapter tells us in verse 7 and 8, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, how is it that we hear each in our own, what? Language. Here's an area where there's all types of languages. And so you have all types of people having to translate and they're not quite sure. And sometimes things get lost in translation. You can have a good translator or a bad translator. But here they're saying, we hear it in our own language. I mean, that would be like somebody here that only speaks Spanish or French or Portuguese. And they say, his accent is perfect. How come I can hear it in Portuguese? Gift of tongues. But there's good news too for us. It wasn't just for the people at Pentecost. It wasn't just for these 12 in Acts chapter 19. But what does it say in verse 17? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He wants to give us his Holy Spirit. And for what purpose? Well, you go back to the words of Jesus before he left. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God gives us mission impossible, but through the Holy Spirit, he says, this is mission possible. I don't speak those languages. He says, it's not a problem. I don't speak eloquently. That's okay. I don't know the Bible backwards and forwards. That's fine. I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through that gift, you will develop the gifts that you need to carry out the work that I've given you to do. And so it's for all. It's a beautiful promise. Here's some other verses about the Holy Spirit and his role in our life. But when the helper comes, anybody here need a helper? I could use a whole host of them. But if it's the Holy Spirit, that's enough. But when the helper comes, 
when I shall send him to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He's a helper. He's a spirit of truth to help us to testify about Jesus. That's good news. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. These are on the words of Jesus, on the lips of Jesus. So it's the Holy Spirit that brings back to our memory. Have you ever had that experience before? Without even really thinking about it, all of a sudden the verse just comes to your mind and you find yourself reciting the verse. You said, boy, how did I remember that? The Holy Spirit. Perhaps you're testifying about him and he brings words back. He's our helper. That's the Holy Spirit. Another verse, John 16, 7 and 8. It is to your advantage, Jesus says, that I go away. For I do not go away. The helper will not come to you. But if I depart, did he depart? I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's another role of the Holy Spirit. Convict you and to convict me of sin. Do we need to be convicted of sin? We do. Without that influence of the Holy Spirit, I'm fine. I don't have any problems. Everything's good. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and says, what about this thing over here? Oh, never mind that. What about this thing over here? He brings us into situations, into conversations, into places to hear speakers or sermons or radio broadcasts or any number of things to bring conviction to our hearts. And we could talk about what we do with that conviction, but that would be a different sermon. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our what? Weaknesses. We don't know how we should pray or how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which could not be uttered according to the will of God. I hear people say all the time, Pastor, I don't know how to pray. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit is there to intercede for you. I don't know if I'm going to get the words just right. That's okay. You probably won't. The Holy Spirit will intercede for you. He is our helper in times of weakness. I mean, there's times that you don't even know what to say. You're just there crying on your knees, and the Holy Spirit is interceding with groans. That's the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who gives us hope? Holy Spirit. Perhaps as he reminds us of words of Scripture. When we have a bad day that leads to a bad week, he reminds us of our favorite verses. He reminds us that we need to pray. He reminds us it's going to be okay. This thing that we thought was the biggest thing ever probably isn't. This too shall pass. John 14, 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. I like that word, comforter. That's what I need sometimes. I like it when people come along and fix it, but sometimes I just like it when people just come alongside and say, I'm sorry. It's going to be okay. I'm here for you. Or maybe they don't say anything at all. It's just their presence, and you know you're not alone. The Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by what? the Spirit, and belief in the truth. What is sanctification anyway? It's this idea of becoming more like Him, isn't it? And who helps us in that? 
Does Jesus stand back and say, get it all figured out, and when you're perfect, come and see me, and we'll talk? No. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you in this process along the way. He's going to convict you of sin. He's going to empower you to overcome sin. He's going to remind you of passages and verses to claim. He's there with you. Again, the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, and I love this verse, but it challenges me every time. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does anybody need those fruits? Some of them, to me, come easier than others. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Is it possible to be right, but not be kind? Is it possible that you know the right thing to do, and you're going to tell them what they need to do, but you're not gentle? Is it possible... That you're supposed to bear long with somebody, but you just want to nip it in the bud? Yeah. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And some of you might say, I need those. How do I get them? I think of Luke 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Thank you for reading this, Isaac. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Notice how simple it was in this verse. Here in Acts, have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? No, we don't know even know what you're talking about. And they're explained and and they come to an understanding and they simply just ask. They want to be baptized. They want somebody to pray over them and they receive the Holy Spirit because they simply asked. We have not because we've asked not. So why aren't we asking more? Why aren't we asking every day for the fruits of the Spirit? Why aren't we asking for love and joy and patience and peace and kindness and self-control? Why aren't we asking for these things? Because He wants to give them to us. I think of this verse in Philippians 2.5 where it talks about Jesus humbling Himself lower and lower until eventually He has humbled Himself to being crucified of all things on a cross, naked, But right there at the top, before we even get into that, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say strive. It doesn't say pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't say hurry up, we're all waiting. It just says let. I mean, what does that word mean, let? Allow. Let my Holy Spirit do the work. Let me come in. Don't keep me out. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. Because God's a gentleman. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not just going to bulldoze his way into your house and start cleaning up all your messes and, and emptying out all your dirty closets and cleaning your bathrooms and taking out your trash. You have to let him in. So simply just every day, let him in. Oh, so you're saying I can just start sleeping in late, I don't have to go to church anymore, I don't have to pray. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you allow the Holy Spirit to do His job. You say, here I am in the morning. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to say my simple prayer in faith. I'm going to let you work in me in in ways that I cannot do. That's what I'm talking about. And when we do that, I believe God longs to change us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit is a good housekeeper in your heart and my heart. 
He's good at it. He's efficient. He'll get the job done. We just have to keep letting him in. All right, we need to get back to our story. I told you there were two groups. We've looked at this first group. They were baptized. They laid hands. They had prayer. They started speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is basically another Pentecost, not in Jerusalem now, but in this heathen area of Ephesus. And then I'm going to jump down now to verse 11 for the sake of time. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Maybe you've read this before. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now this sounds strange, doesn't it? This is really weird. And that's why maybe it tells us God worked unusual miracles in Ephesus. Why do you suppose? I mean, here Paul has a handkerchief. Here, can I borrow that? And they run across town. They take it to the sick person. I'm well. Huh? I'm looking at this verse in Acts of the Apostles 286. Many magicians wielded a powerful influence over the minds of the superstitious worshipers of the image within the temple. Remember that picture of the temple I showed you? And how they were superstitious and how they had all these markings all throughout the temple. And they had all books of how to interpret and this and that and the other. And so there are all these magicians and they're wielding their power and everybody is captivated by this. And so I believe here in this circumstance, God is showing, okay, I can do that. Remember in, in Egypt, right, with the staff and it turns into a snake and the water turns to blood and back. And God says, that's no problem for me. We can, we can do something that they've never been able to do before and they can't mimic or, or duplicate. Here, take a handkerchief, run across town, heal. Do that, magicians. And they say, uh... The apostle Paul in his labors at Ephesus was given special tokens of divine favor. These manifestations of supernatural power were far more potent than had ever before and been witnessed in Ephesus and were of such character that they could not be imitated by the enchantments of the sorcerer. Can God do extreme things in extreme places in extreme times? Absolutely he can. Is this his, his mode of operating most of the time? I think the passage makes that clear. He worked in Ephesus in some pretty unusual ways. But God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's getting the people's attention. And if he did it in Ephesus, he could do it here in Hendersonville. Continuing on this quotation, as the miracles were wrought in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the people had opportunity to see that the God of heaven was more powerful than the magicians who are worshipers of the goddess Diana. There you go. We need to keep going here, though. Not everybody subscribed to this Daniel fast. Then some of the... In- Intenerent Jewish exorcists. Let's break that down a little bit. Intenerent, that just kind of means traveling, drifters, if you will. Jewish, this would be God's chosen people, but they're exorcists. They go around casting out demons, which, you know, there's a place, I suppose, for that, but this is kind of, we have a hint later in the passage that this is pretty dark. It says, then some of the intenerent Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And so here you have people of God, but they haven't let go of all their worldly customs. In fact, it's kind of a blend, if you will, from God's people, but we're kind of blending in the culture. Maybe they use terms like, well, we want to be relevant. I better be careful. We want to be able to, you know, be able to relate to the people. 
and their customs and how they do things. And so we kind of do things the way they might do things, but with just kind of a God slant. And so here this demon comes up, and so they say, yeah, this Jesus, you know, with the handkerchief and all that, he seems pretty powerful. Let's try casting out in the name of Jesus. And what's the response here that we read? And the evil spirit answered and said, it's pretty bad when you get your sermon title from the devil. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I don't know you. Here you are trying to use the power in the name of Jesus, but do they know Jesus? No. Are they in relationship with Jesus? No. Have they asked for the Holy Spirit? Have they let the Holy Spirit in? No. And friends, you know, we talk about the devil as if he's this little thing to not have to be afraid of because God is more powerful. That's absolutely true. But let me tell you, if you don't have God on your side, you better be afraid because the devil is big He's smart, he's cunning, he knows your weaknesses and mine, and given one lick of an opportunity, he will thrash us. He will thrash you and he'll thrash me. And so here, in this moment, we see a shift. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt upon them, overpowering them, and prevailed against them so that they flew out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, they're running for their lives, I imagine. And it says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. They tried to go toe-to-toe with the devil, and they lost. Embarrassingly, they lost. Another quote from Acts of the Apostles, Sorcery had been prohibited by the Mosaic Law on pain of death, yet from time to time it had been secretly practiced by the apostate Jews. We know this is forbidden. We know this is not something that we're supposed to do, but from time to time, we can just secretly dabble. Shh, don't tell anybody. I mean, you do it too. Shh. And so then they get hammered. We read that part already. And it says, facts had previously been concealed were now brought to light. Their true character was exposed, we could say. Their true relationship or lack thereof was exposed. Facts had been previously concealed were now brought to light. In accepting Christianity, some of the believers had not fully renounced their superstitions. To some extent, they still continued the practice of magic. And you say, well, pastor, we're in 2020. We don't do magic. It doesn't apply to us. Or does it? They accepted Christianity. We've accepted Christianity. But have we fully renounced the world? What do you have in your earbuds? The music that you listen to. I could spend the next hour easily talking about all kinds of music and the lyrics that are just detestable. People that are sane in their lyrics that I've given my heart to the devil and my soul to the devil and all of these things. And they're the number one hit. Well, I just like the beat. Remember how when David used to play the harp? And if you go back and look at that story, he would feel anxious and, and all worried that he had these evil spirits and David would come and play the harp and with music, the spirit would depart from Saul. Is it too far-fetched to think that with music, the spirit can fill our minds and take possession of us based on what we're listening to? 
And is it any different than dabbling with the magic back then? How about entertainment? For some of you, as soon as the sun sets tonight, you're going to go to Netflix or one of these other places and you're going to find something to watch for entertainment. And in that entertainment, there's going to be all kinds of garbage. Well, pastor, I don't do it. Well, good. I'm glad. I just like to watch other people do it for entertainment. Not so glad. What does that say about me as an individual when I'm entertained by watching other people in their sin? And what happens to this idea that by beholding, I become changed? I mean, we could talk about gaming. This seems like the most ridiculous thing for me to even talk about, but statistics keep showing that time and time again, people are sucked into gaming. And what's the biggest part about gaming? I don't fully know, but if I get this thing and I get this spell and I cast it over here and I shoot up these people over there and I take possession and all this other stuff. I mean, we're Christian. We're here. But we're dabbling, aren't we? And what if on down the line it gets a little bit rough or it gets a little bit too hard and we say to the devil, I cast you out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil looks at us in the eyes and says, I know Christ, I know Paul, but who are you? This is a serious message. And we can sit here in our comforts and we can say, oh, I'm fine. And, and that's the ladies to see in the church. I have one foot over here in the church side of things. And I have one foot over here in the world side of things, and I like it that way. Oh, you're going to go to hell. No, I'm not. I was in church on Sabbath. Oh, you're a legalistic. You're a holy roller. No, I'm not. I know how to have fun. And we think we can just teeter on the line. But the time's going to come that we can't teeter. And the real true reality is, if we're not decidedly on the side of Jesus Christ, we're not on his side at all. And what is that other verse that, that plagues me at times? When Jesus, you know, he says, you know, didn't we cast out demons in your name and work miracles in your name and all these things in your name? And he says, I never knew you. I mean, even Jesus might say, I knew Paul. I knew Stephen. I knew Moses. I knew, but David Wright, who are you? Wow. So what happens to the second group? Verse 17. Oh no, we've got to go to another verse first. We'll come back to that. Keep your, your finger in the book of Acts. We're going to finish up there. But 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Another verse that haunts me. Verse 1. But know this. I'll give you a little time. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I want you to see this in your own Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, are we living in the last days? Perilous times will come. Have perilous times come? For men will be lovers of themselves. Do we see that? Yes. Lovers of money. Yes. Boasters. Yes. Proud. Yes. Blasphemers. Yes. Disobedient to parents. Absolutely. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanders. Without self-control. We see it all. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then here's verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And what was the power we learned of earlier today? The Holy Spirit. 
denying the power of the Holy Spirit to take away all of these evil traits of character that are in you and me, and the Holy Spirit longs to do it. And if we just ask, he'll do it. But if we don't ask, we end up being in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have mercy. And so back to our story in Acts. Chapter 19, verse 17. We'll go back up to 16. No, we'll go to 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leading on them overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And it says in verse 19, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, various commentators will say different things, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. And this takes real humility. Go home, clean out your DVDs, clean out your music, find it on your phone, wherever it is, and bring it here. We're going to burn it. And everybody sees your stuff. Everybody sees your books of magic. Everybody sees your pornography. Everybody sees your alcohol. And you put it in in a paper bag. We know what it is. Everybody sees your cigarettes and all of your garbage. But they bring it and they say, we have to burn this stuff. Because we've seen what happens when we dabble with it. And it's not good. And I believe in this passage, we have a call to God's church to burn your junk. And we can sit here and think, oh, I don't have any junk. Well, then pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal the junk whether it's big stuff or little stuff. Why are you dabbling with it? Why is it in your possession? Why is it in your home? Get rid of it. Well, pastor, it's worth a lot of money. I mean, it's a whole collection of cigars. I got burn it. Well, couldn't I at least sell it and make it? No, you're putting it in somebody else's hands. Burn it, destroy it, get rid of it. Put it down the drain. And notice the last verse here. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Do you want the word of the Lord to grow mightily in your own experience? Then get your junk and burn it. Do you want the Holy Spirit to come alive in your life? Nothing will do it more than saying, okay, this thing, this pet, this thing, this shackle that's been on my leg for 25 years, it's gone. How are you going to get rid of it? You've tried before. Your promises are like ropes of sand. This time I'm claiming the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to get it out of my life. I'm burning it. I'm going to destroy it. And that's the greatest thing about fire. You know, you have a weak moment later and you come back, oh, 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 and you're here in the ashes and you're picking through it. It's gone. Chemically, it's changed forms. It's not that thing anymore. We need to burn it. And so I'm going through this, and I'm thinking, 
Well, that's nice. How do I preach this sermon and just wish him a happy Sabbath? You can't do that. And so here I am again, going through this series of Paul, asking and making an appeal. And you say, man, another appeal? Yeah. I don't intend for this to be a general appeal. I don't intend for everybody to come forward. But I also don't want you to think that anybody that comes forward has an issue with alcohol or pornography or cigarette. That might be the thing. It might be something else. It might be this pestering habit. It's really none of our business. But if they have the the guts to bring all of their stuff physically and burn it, shouldn't we be okay just coming forward and saying, I have a thing. And today I'm deciding to burn it. And it's probably better we not share it because your thing might be this eensy beensy, but it's keeping you from God. And your thing might be, well, man, I'm I'm strung out on, on cocaine and heroin. Fine. God's big enough for all of it. But what do you need to burn? And I like to think that this is a safe place, that if you come up, nobody's talking, nobody's whispering. Oh, Pastor Wright's addicted to heroin. No. But he wants to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says there's a thing in your life and you've been dealing with it far too long. I want to free you from that thing. And by coming forward, I want to burn it. Yes, it's still at home, but as soon as I get home, I'm getting rid of it. I know exactly where it is. I know where it is on my phone, on my computer, wherever, and I'm going to get rid of it. Maybe you're here in the band and you think, I don't even go to this church, so I'm I'm exempt. No, you're not. Well, we have to play the, the prelude. That's okay, we have a hymn first. Well, I have an instrument on my lap. Set it down, you'll be fine. Come forward. And say, Lord... I want my experience to be that of the first group, not the second group. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the good news is there's plenty of supply. There's no lack. God longs to fill you. God longs to use you. God longs to empower and enable you. He longs to give you a new and fresh experience with him. And what do we have to do? We have to let. So that's what I'm asking. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that has convicted our hearts this morning, that has revealed to us, brought to our mind very vividly something, maybe two or three things that we need to let go. We've been dabbling in it for too long. It's not good for us. It's not helpful for us. It separates us from you. It takes valuable time that we could be spending doing other things to further ministry in your work. We could spend it in prayer. We could spend it... In Bible study, Lord, whatever the thing, whether it literally is some powerful drug, whether it's something we're viewing that we shouldn't, whether it's a a commandment that we're breaking, whether it's a relationship that doesn't honor you, whatever the thing, we have come this morning symbolically to say, we want to burn it. We want it to be gone. We want it to be no more. And we want the the word of the Lord to prosper and be magnified in our lives as a result. Lord, we can't do it on our own. But we surrender ourselves and ask that your Holy Spirit will do the work in and through us as we continually make ourselves available to you. 
We thank you for that precious gift that enables us to overcome by your grace. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.